was a picture of me posing with a dead ISIS fighter, uh, along with uh, 12 other people. And they came back and had said that I had stabbed an ISIS prisoner to death, um, and they had it on video. Is it common at the end to take pictures of the enemy you take out? NCIS does not like, uh, they don't like Navy SEALs. They're always looking to take, someone, take one down, and that's when the president stepped in and said, okay, let him out of prison so he can properly defend himself. They would send out women and kids in droves uh, running towards us and then mow them down in front of us. How do you train emotional? You know, being SEALs and we have a job to do, we, we're very mission focused. And after seeing what they do to other humans, you don't look at them as human anymore. So my guest today is Chief Eddie Gallagher. He's a decorated veteran, Navy SEAL, eight combat deployments, two Bronze Stars with V for Valor, Navy Achievement with Valor. And uh, depending on how you've seen his story being told by which media platform, you either don't think uh, highly of some of the things that took place and maybe some of the things he's not proud of, and maybe he'll talk about it with his new book that just came out, or you'll look at him as somebody that uh, to understand what he had to do to go against enemy that are trying to do whatever they can to dethrone America or take our freedoms away. To, to be able to do that job is not everybody's job. So we're going to take a deep dive today on that story. With that being said, Eddie, thank you so much for being a guest on the uh, Valuetainment today. Yeah, man, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. First of all, appreciate your uh, service. You know, you I was in for a couple of years, but you took it to a whole different level. Uh, you know, everybody, every kid that goes into the military, we admire, we respect for somebody, you know, one day being an army ranger or, you know, 18 Delta special forces, Navy SEAL, you were able to do that. And you went out there and faced off with some of the most uh, feared opposition and enemies. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. So Eddie, if you don't mind, before we go into some of the stuff with your book and some of the controversy around uh, what took place with you uh, 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 while you were in some stories, we'll cover that as well. Can you walk me through your background? Let's go all the way to high school. If I was in high school with you in 10th grade, who was Eddie and what's the story with how you got into the military? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, my dad was uh, in the Army. He uh, graduated from West Point. Uh, so he was in for about 24 years. So I grew up an Army brat uh, moving around every two years, uh, mostly in Asia. Uh, was, I spent most of my childhood, but then ended up in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana for high school uh, after my dad had retired. Um, you know, I was... Uh, I was a rambunctious kid, uh, just, you know, school wasn't uh, my thing. I was just always uh, getting in trouble in the mix, but I had, I've always had loyal friends uh, everywhere I went. Um, and by the time I finished high school, you know, which I, I barely graduated, uh, I tried college, uh, gave that about a half a semester and realized I wasn't mature enough yet to for college. Um, so I decided to join the Navy. Uh, it was just a uh, decision I made to get out of Fort Wayne, Indiana and uh, try and make something of myself. Uh, and then, you know, I went to the recruiting office. They, uh, you know, the recruiter was going over what jobs to have. And I, I already knew in my mind, I wanted to be a commando of some sort. So I chose, uh, you know, I want to be a SEAL. Um, unfortunately, back then, there wasn't like a straight pipeline to uh, go to BUD. So I, you know, I went to boot camp, uh, had to go to an A school, uh, which I went to core school, which is a uh, medic for the Navy. And then from there, I was assigned to the Marines uh, for four years. Um, and so I did my tour there with the Marines, which was uh, a blessing. You know, I got to go to uh, a lot of good schools. I, I ended up going to Marine Corps Sniper School, uh, 
Marine Combat Water Survival School. So pretty much anything, I, I was doing anything and everything to prepare for BUDS, uh, to prepare to go to be a SEAL. And uh, of course, 9-11 happened. Uh, during that time, I had joined in 99. Um, and in 2001, 9-11 happened, and that sort of solidified um, exactly why I joined. Um, and so I uh, did a tour um, with the Marines. Uh, they they went into Iraq, Mosul, Iraq, uh, and then came back and uh, went right to BUDS um, and uh, ended up graduating in class 252. Uh, and then from there, earned my trident, uh, did a bunch of platoons at Team 1, um, became an instructor for about a year and a half at BUDS, and then went to Team 7 and did multiple platoons there until uh, my last deployment in 2017, which was back to Mosul. 2017. And by the way, going back when you said you, you, your dad was in the army for 22 years or 24 years, when, when he was in, you said most of the time in Asia, what part of Asia? Was it Okinawa? Was it Korea? Was it Camp Casey? So we lived in Seoul, Korea. We lived in uh, Beijing, China. Um, we did some time in Japan and, uh, and that, that was pretty much it. So, and, uh, China. as well, how was China back then when, when you were, I mean, even as a kid, how old were you when you were in China? I was in uh, kindergarten and first grade, uh, but I remember it pretty vividly. Um, you know, it was uh, it was a lot different back then than it is now. Um, just seeing it on the TV now, like there's no vehicles. Uh, everybody was riding bicycles. Uh, it was interesting. You know, we had, uh, of course, you know, my dad working there at the embassy. You know, we had um, Chinese nannies because my mom taught English while she was there, uh, but they were all spies. Uh, so <laughs> we pretty much had spies. Uh, that were trying to gather information on us. Get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so, was, so your nanny was a spy. Now, how'd you guys figure out that your nanny was a spy? Oh, she told my parents uh, because she was <laughs> she was getting uh, a lot of heat from the government because she there was nothing to collect. Uh, she was watching myself and my little brother. So I think they were on top of her telling her, you know, like, hey, we need some information. And then uh, I think my parents threw a party at one point, you know, and had a lot of guests over. Uh, we lived in a, an apartment. And uh, that's, you know, they said that the uh, nannies were super excited and thanking them because then they could actually, you know, report something back. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. And, you know, obviously, I didn't know a lot of that was going on. But now, you know, hearing the stories now from my parents, it's, uh, it's what funny. was your job? What was your dad's MOS? Um, he uh, MP. Uh, I don't he, he was a uh, military police. Yeah, got it. It was an MP. Interesting MP in uh, in uh, China base. Uh, that. I mean, he, he spoke five different languages, so it was, uh, he was you know, obviously the uh, army used him in the best ways they could. He spoke five different languages. Yeah. How? How did he speak five languages? He's, he's a, a remarkable human being. That's pretty uh, impressive, man. That's, and, and your dad is a Caucasian, American. Yeah, yeah Irish. <laughs> yeah. Speaks five languages. What were those five languages? Um, see, the... I think it's two or three dialects of, uh, you know, Chinese. So it's like Cantonese, uh, something I, and I'm, I'll mess it up, but also Korean, uh, German, German. And I think he speaks some French. And, and did he go from MP? Did he move up higher? Did he end up doing other, other things as well? Or was it just 22 years, 24 years and he retired? 24. I mean, he didn't want to retire. He, uh, you know, he ended up uh, while we were in Korea, he went to Desert Storm uh, when that was going on, came back. And then I think uh, at the time uh, Clinton was president and they were doing a lot of uh, budget cuts in the military. And he was just told, like, your time's up. Uh, it was 
it was pretty crushing to him because he loved the army, but you know, it, it was what it was. I remember they were doing that when we were in the army. They'd come up to you and they say, "Listen, here's what we're doing. We're giving a bonus for you to leave the army and not stay in." And they, you know, budget cuts when it happens. Some of the guys that are around longer, they're the ones typically that are the first to go, and they go yeah. and ask them to go. Maybe they'll give them a bonus uh, to ask them to leave. Interesting. You said you said you you did the sniper. You did a bunch of different. Uh, 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 courses and schools that you took when you were training with the Marines yourself. What did you ever take anything with Marines that was as tough uh, as Buds was? Was there anything that you did with Marines? We said there's this one training I took with them. It kicked my ass. It was the closest thing to you know being a Navy SEAL. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know the you know Marine Corps Sniper School was uh, definitely one of the toughest courses I've ever been to. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the attrition rate's just about the same. Uh, you know, the Marines, high, they hold that school in a very high regard. So they make sure that people who pass it have earned it. Uh, you know, and it was, I had no, you know, I didn't grow up with guns. I didn't grow up shooting. Uh, so every, I was learning everything on the fly, um, you know, as far as becoming an infantryman or just being a comfortable around guns. So it was, it was pretty challenging, uh, but I, you know, I, I made it through that. And then the uh, Marine Corps Water Survival School is definitely the toughest water school I've been to. Um, it's uh, no joke. It's about five weeks, and uh, when you come out of there, you're you feel like a fish. <laughs> what's what's tough about it? Like if you were to kind of give us a, you know. Uh, so I'll give you like just a normal day. Uh, you show up. Uh, you do. Uh, you swim, two thousand meters uh, with full camis. Uh, every five hundred meters, you take off a piece of your camis, and then. Uh, by the end of that 2000, they are tying all of your clothes together. They've tied all your clothes together at the bottom of the pool, the deep end, and they, you, you have a certain amount of time to find your clothes and put them back on. And then uh, you get classes all day, uh, but the classes, you're treading water the whole time while the instructor's outside teaching, outside of the pool, teaching the class. Um, and then at the end of the day, you do, uh, they call it, uh, you know, PT, but uh, it's in the pool. So it's like an hour and a half to two hours of just straight uh, exercises in the pool, breathing exercises, sprints. That's after the 2000 meters with your full gear on and every 500 meters you take a piece off. Oh yeah. So you're, uh, you come out of there like super in shape, super comfortable in the water. Um, you know, and that had a, a pretty good attrition rate as well uh, for people that were quitting. Wow. Um, okay. So then fast forward to now, obviously we know what happened. A uh, year and a half ago, I think it was, was it a year and a half ago, two years ago, when President Trump uh, helped you, uh, uh, you know, get your rank back, you, he gave you a phone call, I think he called you and spoke to you about uh, what took place, would you mind sharing with the audience some of the events that took place uh, two years ago when he got that phone call? Sure. So, I mean, I'll, I'll try and uh, sum it up as best I can. Uh, you know, I, I would, like I said, my last uh, deployment was to Missoula in 2017. Um, we were directed to uh, annihilate ISIS uh, out of Mosul. Um, the great deployment, uh, we successful deployment. We uh, did clear Mosul in time. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there was four, around three to four guys in my platoon um, who we did not get along. Uh, they were younger guys. It was their first time in combat. Um, I think they, their eyes were opened, uh, especially on that deployment. It was pretty uh, chaotic. But uh, I think they realized that it, this job wasn't for them, uh, but instead of taking ownership of that, they threw, you know, pointed the finger at me and pretty much were saying, I put them in harm's way. I made them, you know, go out all the time and do, do their job. Um, and, you know, their, their complaints 
were pretty petty. Uh, they went to my command after the deployment with these complaints and the command told them that these were not real complaints and to move on. Uh, so they kept escalating their allegations when they weren't getting the attention they wanted. So that it turned in from I was dangerous to I was a thief. Um, of course, they had nothing to back it up for being a thief. Uh, and they, I think the command finally told them like, listen, either you guys move on or come, you know, come back with something that's uh, legit. And so about six months later, they came back and had said that I had stabbed an ISIS prisoner to death. Um, and they had it on video. Um, the command bought their lie. Uh, I'm not sure if the command ever asked to see the video or not, but because the video never existed. Um, but the command uh, bought off on it, uh, told them to report it to NCIS. And so once NCIS uh, took the allegations and turned it into an investigation, that's where this thing really went off the rails. Uh, we, they had a uh, corrupt agent, NCIS agent named Joe Warpinski took the case, um, very young um, and uh, ambitious, but also very incompetent. And uh, he pretty much formed a prosecution before he started investigating. And he pretty much took whatever little pieces of information he could to, you know, throw at, throw at me during the investigation. And then anything that cleared my name, he would, he would hide, uh, which, you know, we would find out during this process. But uh, it was an eye opener. Um, you know, as soon as I was accused or, not even acute, like the rumors were out there that I had killed an ISIS prisoner. It was, I was guilty until proven innocent. I was told that by my command. Um, they pretty much shunned me. Uh, they, you know, put me in an office and told me to sit there and well, they wait to see where this thing goes. Um, while I was, you know, sitting in that office for about a month, they uh, raided my house. NCIS came, um, they were staking me out for about two weeks. Uh, they came and raided my house while my wife and I were not home, uh, pulling my two youngest or my two boys out at gunpoint uh, in their underwear and then laid siege to my house. Uh, that's when we knew, my wife and I knew this thing was uh, off the rails. Um, but, you know, we didn't know what to do at the time. Um, I had, so shortly after they had raided my house, I had moved my family to Florida. Uh, and then I was going to geobatch uh, for the, my final year until I retired. Um, they waited for me to come back, uh, after moving my family to Florida and I went to a, uh, uh, TBI clinic, a traumatic brain injury clinic to get checked up. Uh, it's a normal procedure for guys who are about to retire to get checked up for all their injuries during their uh, career. And I was about a week into that when, and they came and arrested me and threw me in a military prison with no charges, um, no explanation why I was being thrown in prison. They just said they had orders from, uh, Admiral Green, who is the uh, the admiral in charge of uh, WARCOM at the time, and then also signed off by uh, Commander Rosenblum, who was the uh, Commodore of Group One for Naval Special Warfare. Um, any, they, any, do you know any reason why they arrested you on 9-11? Uh, yeah. 9-11, 2018, what was the reason behind that? Was that like a message? I mean, the, the, you know, you could do 9-12, 9-10. 9-11 is 9-11. Exactly. They, everything they do, and this is what I learned through this process, so all these actions they took against me are done on purpose. Them raiding my house without myself and my wife there was to enrage me and also to break up my family and also to put shame on our family, which worked because our neighbors were like, oh, they just don't do that to people unless you did something. Um, and then uh, during uh, when I was at the TBI clinic, they chose September 11th for that specific reason because they know that day means a lot to us uh, who have been serving the past 20 years. Um, and they thought that that would make me snap and I would do something. Um, 
obviously I'm a lot smarter than that. I just, I complied. I, I thought I was like, this is a big mistake. Um, and I thought that, you know, in my mind, I was like, this is a big mistake. You guys, uh, this will be fixed. But as I came to find out, once you're thrown in uh, military prison, even as a pretrial prisoner, um, you are not getting out at all until your trial date. And once they throw you in there, they just keep pushing your trial date back and back and back, hoping you'll take a plea deal. So, you know, uh, the video that you say that they sent to NCIS and, and for audience that doesn't know what NCIS is, NCIS is uh, it's the intelligence organization, right? It's, it's uh, the, what does NCIS stand for? Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Yeah, Naval Criminal Investigative. Okay. So when, once it goes there, there was one video that was circulating. What was that one video with the body that was limp? And you apologize for that one video. I don't know what they had, John. Was that on 60 Minutes? There was somewhere I saw a video with you so and body. There's pictures. So what they did when they raided my house, uh, they had they took they took all my phones, everything. Um, and uh, there was a picture of me posing with a dead ISIS fighter, uh, along with uh, 12 other people in my platoon. Um, and also I had sent a text message uh, to a buddy of mine um, during that deployment as a joke um, with that picture saying, good story behind this, got him with a hunting knife. Uh, that was a dark humor. Um, I, but I'll tell you what, that that was the best and pe worst piece of evidence they had against me. Um, you know, it was the worst because obviously it makes me look pretty guilty uh but if you you know zoom in on the picture and look there's no blood on the knife there's no blood on me there's no blood anywhere no no uh um uh, nothing that shows this guy's been stabbed uh but they took that text message and that picture and that's that was their main piece of evidence they're like we got him and that's they were going around telling everybody they had me dead to rights like he's guilty he's going away um but they had also since these um younger guys in my platoon had said there was a video uh, they were you know they were spreading that rumor as well saying like because the judge had put a gag order on all the evidence so you we weren't allowed to show the evidence to anybody and neither was the prosecution or they they weren't supposed to but as we come came to find out they were given whatever evidence they wanted to the media um to sort of smear my name but uh eventually we got the judge uh, to uh, let us show the video to Congress um, because that lie had gone all the way up to the White House saying there was a video of me doing uh, this act. And so once we were able to show the actual video to members of Congress and whoever else, it was they quickly realized that they had been lied to by the Navy. Uh, and that's where you know their case started crumbling. Is that is that pretty common though? When you you know you're you're going against an enemy, they're trying to kill you. They maybe have killed a couple of your buddies people that you love people that you spend time with you're emotionally vested in it they're willing to take your life you're protecting your country there's a certain level of animosity and hatred that's built for your enemy when you go up against them is it common at the end to take pictures of the enemy you take out is that pretty common that happen? Well, maybe not necessarily publicly let me post it on my instagram but is it common to to do that to say hey we took this guy out uh, yeah but it's common uh, standard operating procedure uh, for some units to take pictures of the bodies that they've killed so they can, you know, bring back and uh, show proof, like, especially if they're a high value target. Uh, and then, you know, what we, we were messing around uh, and that's, I would say that's not common, I'd say, um, but it does happen. Uh, you know, I think the, the environment that we were in, um, 
it's hard to explain to people just uh, how it was going into that city every day. There was dead bodies piled up all over the place. Uh, we were watching women and kids get mowed down uh, on a weekly basis, um, just watching ISIS commit these atrocities. So we definitely uh, were super desensitized. Uh, and, you know, once you, you see that on a regular basis yep. from end, you don't really think twice about messing around like that. Um, obviously, when deployment's over and you come back to the States uh, and, you know, certain people like what happened, get a hold of that picture or yeah. see that they they freak out uh, and they're like how can how can you guys do this or how can you pose like this and it's like well you know you go ahead and uh, put yourself in my shoes for six months and or however many deployments and i'm, I'm not making excuses for it uh you know i've said it on other interviews before uh it was a wrong decision to do but it was done uh, you know and i think i paid my dues for that yeah, and you know, uh, 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 you've seen maybe the Netflix series Narcos about Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. I, I interviewed Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena were the two DA agents. Steve Murphy has that legendary picture that they show. It's on the cover of their books with him and a dead Pablo Escobar on the rooftop of a uh, building somewhere in Medellin. So that's what I mean. Like, is there a, there's, there's a part of it where you spend months and months and months, sometimes years going up against an enemy where you build up so much animosity. So I guess my question for you would be the following. What boils your blood? Like if, if, if somebody asks you a question, no one becomes a person at your level without being a fighter and having strong emotions where you're willing to put yourself out there to essentially bully the bully. You got to have a courage. You got to be brave. You got to be a little bit also, you know, uh, uh, off. You can't be uh, not maybe off is not the word I'm looking for. You got to be a little bit abnormal. Like even in the world of business, when you think about some of these guys that build a business and they ask uh, Bill Gates, so let me ask you, how much vacation did you do? He says, for 20 years, I never took a day off. That's you're a little bit off if you go 20 years without taking a day off. That's not what normal people would say. You're supposed to get eight hours of sleep. You're supposed to do this. No, if you if a man on, is on a mission, they're not wired the same way to go up against enemies like ISIS. But to you, what, what was boiling your blood and how did you view ISIS and what they were trying to take away from you or what they were trying to do to you and your country? You know, uh, you know what, what boils my blood is, a, you, you said it, uh, is bullies, right? Like ever since I was little, even coming up, I've, I've always stood up, tried to stand up for people. When I got in a lot of fights when I was growing up because of bullies or standing up for other people. Um, and that's exactly what ISIS was, is the ultimate bully. I mean, they were, they were pulling the most atrocious stuff I'd seen in my eight combat deployments. And I'd seen, you know, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, do some nasty things, but ISIS seemed on a whole other level. Um, and you just don't, you don't look at them after seeing what they do to other humans, um, especially, you know, other Iraqis, uh, you don't look at them as human anymore. You're just like, I, you're, they're evil and you need to be taken off this earth. There's no, there's no uh, court or thing that they should go to to you know, decide their fate. It's like you chose your fate by being on this battlefield and by pulling the atrocities that you're doing. And we're going to kill every one of you. What are some things you saw? Like what were some disturbing things you saw while you were out there? They uh, normally would um, you know, be across the you know the battlefield or you know in the city um and if there was an open uh, lot or field 
they would send out women and kids in droves uh, running towards us and then mow them down in front of us, uh, trying to pull, get us out in the open to, you know, help the women and kids. And of course, there's nothing you can do at that point. Um, uh, what else they were doing is they were putting um, silhouettes on top of buildings that with uh, rifles in their hand. Um, and so, and then they would chain women and kids inside the house at the bottom. Uh, so we would confuse the silhouette with a enemy combatant vomit and then all the women and kids would would be killed and they'd use that as propaganda against us um and uh you know just some of the some of the other things i did not i didn't see personally but the rumors were going around from the our partner force that they were uh boiling kids alive and then making i mean this is making the mothers drink the broth i mean it's very disgusting and disturbing um and that's that's just but that's the environment that we were in. Yeah, that's intense. And you witnessed the first two, not the last one, but you witnessed the first two. Uh, I mean, there was multiple rumors of just uh, the, the evil stuff they were doing, but I never witnessed those things firsthand. But the first one with them send the kids and just, you know, you saw that, you witnessed them shooting them down regularly. Uh, regular, like not regular basis, but we saw it enough times. Well, let me ask you, what does that do to you psychologically when you see that? What, so you, it's you and your peers, your buddies, you're there, you see that. What are you guys saying to each other afterwards? What are you thinking about it afterwards? What's, what's your natural reaction to it when you see that? Um, I think everybody reacts to it differently. Uh, I can tell you that each, the same, rea you know, the same reaction was everybody was just uh, sort of horrified by it. Um, but, you know, being SEALs and we have a job to do, we, we're very mission focused and we don't let that, uh, those kind of things take us, take our eyes off the mission. Uh, we pretty much, <laughs> which not the healthiest thing to do, but we'll just take that and stuff it down and be like, I don't want to think about it. Keep going. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's not until after deployments, usually when you start talking or telling stories about the deployment is when you start dealing with some of those things You're like, Oh yeah, we did see that. Oh, I did, you know, and uh, it does, it has an effect, but during the deployment, um, I did not let it bother me. So, so it doesn't produce a rage to say, wait till you see what we're going to do to you as the enemy. You know, it's kind of like the movie, uh, I interviewed Taya. What was Taya? Uh, the book uh, Sniper, American Sniper with Bradley Cooper, Chris Kyle. I interviewed his wife. And you hear him talk about like, you know, here's how many people he killed. And how do you feel about you doing that? He says, very easy because I'm, you know, killing the enemy. And you can tell that, you know, the guy seems like an easygoing guy, but you can tell if the enemy comes to take something away from me, from him, you know, he's willing to go against anybody. How do you, how do you manage that to not allow the rage to get you to react emotionally? How do you manage the rage? Uh, we, I mean, we train nonstop uh, for uh, numerous situations like that. Um, I think, you know, due to our training, we're able to control our emotions uh, a lot more in those type of situations. Uh, obviously, you know, those seeing that happen does, uh, spark a reaction and yeah i think you know we were we were pretty much dead set on annihilating every one of them uh, while we were there um i you know it's like i said i looked at it as just taking evil off this earth um you know the people of iraq don't deserve to have those people there um holding them hostage for years how do you train your emotions though i mean there's a big difference between you training to shoot something you know uh, uh because you're a marksman or you you can train to swim and last a long time, all that stuff. But how do you train emotional when 
you see that kind of atrocity right in front of you. What is the method of training to control your emotions? I wouldn't, I would say, uh, I wouldn't say like there's training. I just say you learn to stuff your emotions. You stuff them down and you keep going. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's the, the right answer either um, because obviously those will come bubbling back up later yeah. on in life. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to deal with them. But during that time, that's, that's how we do it. We need to get the job done. We're all about getting the job accomplished and uh, we'll do whatever it takes to do it. I mean, you know, the, you know, the difference, you know, with some, my dad would say sometimes it's better to explode than to implode because if you constantly keep it inside of you one day, when you do it's, it's, uh, it's explosive because you, you, it's rage building up for years where you don't know at what levels to, to stop when that happens to you. By, by the way, what is the best way to describe who NCIS would be? Like, meaning, you know, we're not in the world. It's NCIS, uh, let's just say in the business world. If, if I'm the business owner, small business owner creating jobs, is NCIS the government? Is NCIS the regulators? Is NCIS, so who is NCIS to you? Uh, NCIS, so what, what they claim, and this is what they told me when they uh, tried to interrogate me, is that they are like the FBI, uh, which is not even close. Um, so NCIS agents all have tried out for the FBI or, or other three-letter agencies and have failed out, and that's, this is their last attempt. That's who will take them, right? So they're, they're very, uh, it's like the Barney Five Squad, um, if you will. And like I said, they, they're very incompetent at investigating, but they are all very ambitious because they're trying to make it to that next level. Yeah, I mean, the Barney Five Squad, if people don't know what the Barney Five Squad is, that they, we have to put a picture for people to know what that is. But uh, <laughs> so, so do they like people like you? Does NCIS like people like you? And if they don't, why not? You know, from my experience, uh, being in, no, NCIS does not like uh, they don't like Navy SEALs. They're always looking to take someone, take one down because uh, they look, and this is a sick way of looking at it, but they look at it as like a big career move for them. Uh, if they can bag a Navy SEAL, make headlines, um, then they can move up in their whatever ladder of their uh, career. But, uh, you know, because I've had, you know, my first platoon chief in Iraq was uh, taken out uh, by NCIS about midway through our deployment and uh, they ruined his career over nothing. Um, and then from then on, I've always, you know, seen NCIS messing, messing around with other guys. And so I knew once uh, they came and tried to talk to me, I mean, I, I knew they weren't on my side, even though they try to give you the whole rigmarole of like, oh, we're, we're here to actually investigate, and just talk about it. I, I knew they had a bias, um, but, you know, I was polite to them when they talked to me and I told them, hey, I, you know, no offense, but I, I want my lawyer present. And uh, once I told them that, they left the room and locked me in a room for seven hours while they raided my house. Yeah, I, I guess where I'm trying to go with this to get perspective for the audience. So there's roughly 2,500 active Navy SEALs today, okay? In America, we have roughly 2,500, 3,000 billionaires in America today, right? Who goes after billionaires? Typically, you know, an AOC or Bernie Sanders goes after billionaires. You guys are too rich and Elizabeth Warren you know, and it's a card. I got to go take this one guy down because he's too rich, right? Is it a similar analogy where they kind of want to have, like, I took this Navy SEAL down? Is it kind of like that? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, the best way I can describe it is, you know, it's just weaker men trying to take down stronger men than them. Uh, they're, they're beta males, um, and they, they hate the fact that uh, we we are what we are, and I think they're, they're constantly looking for a reason to uh, try and take us down. You talk about that in your book. You talk about beta males, cowards, weak, entitled millennials. 
what, tell me a little bit more about that. What does a beta male look like? What does an entitled uh, uh, generation look like to you? You know, I, I don't think you can uh, say, base it on looks. Uh, I've, you know, I actually had this conversation with my youngest son not too long ago from now, and I was like, you know, a beta male is somebody who is con pretty much plays the victim role all the time. Uh, it's always a victim. And then they're always trying to take down better people than them. They, uh, they don't like who they are. Um, but so instead of trying to fix themselves, they're just going to take down people who they think are bigger than them or better than them. I think we got a few of them today, maybe a handful of them in America today. You know, the China, I'm trying to count all of them. There's a handful I think we have in America today. And they, I can't see them liking somebody like you. Uh, 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 especially in your world, because to be a Navy SEAL, you got to put your butt on the line. Now, you know, I've asked this question before, whether it was with, you know, any of these military guys I've interviewed, whether it's Jocko or, or Peranto or even McChrystal, you go through, you know, some of them on the left, some of them on the right, and, you know, you ask them these questions. Like, uh, when you talk to athletes who they've been playing for 10 years, professional athletes, NBA, MLB, and they're on the road, you know, and they live a certain life. The normal person's not going to understand what kind of a life they live, right? Yeah. You talk to Hollywood stars, they're A-listers. A-listers, I'm talking about the Will, the Rocks, the Vin Diesel, the DiCaprio, the Downey Jr., those guys, right? You and I don't know what it is to be those guys because we don't know what it is to go to Walmart. The next thing you know, you can't go to Walmart, right, to just pick up some milk at 10 o'clock at night because – you're swamped with 50 people taking pictures from you. So we don't know what it's like, but they know. You know, if you're a rock star, you know that one movie with Mark Wahlberg, who was, he was a, uh, you know, I don't remember what the movie was, but it was a great movie. Uh, and you interview a Gene Simmons or, you know, one of those guys. And they tell you the stories like, oh my God, really that kind of stuff took place? Yeah. Is it kind of like that where you talk to a regular human being and you're kind of like, dude, you have no clue what kind of a life we freaking live when we're out there. Like, I don't even want to explain to you what kind of life we live because you would never understand what the hell we go through over there. The only, do you ever catch yourself wanting to only speak to in depth about the life you live with people that actually can understand what you guys went through on a daily basis? Uh, you know, it's, yeah, like, that's definitely a common uh, thing, especially when I was in, you just, you know, you just happen to hang out with other SEALs. Like you don't really hang out with civilians, even on your off time. Um, it's a very, very tight knit uh, community. And then inside that it's, you know, you have your little tribes, um, you know, so you have your close friends, but that's pretty much who you're around. Uh, that's it for 20 years. Uh, you know, it's, I, I've rarely had any civilian friends and then uh, it's, it is difficult. Um, you know, and everybody is very supportive and appreciative, but it's, it's difficult to uh, try and put into words like, hey, this is how we live. Uh, this is, this is uh, you know, what our schedule's like. And, you know, I think the, the big eye opener is, you know, if you talk to a spouse that's married to a Navy SEAL and what the family has to go through during that, you know, that career, um, those, they're, they're the true warriors. Uh, you know, they, they hold down the fort at home, make sure everything's taken care of. They, they make sure like we don't have to worry about as much at home so we can focus on our job. Um, you know, and that takes, that takes a toll uh, on a family, but that, you know, as long as you have a strong foundation and a strong wife or a strong husband or whatever, uh, you know, that's, that's what makes how you can make it through. Um, but it is, 
you know, especially now that I've been out now, uh, I think that's why it's, it's very hard for guys to transition out of that job as well. Um, we are in, indoctrinated into a very uh, fast paced lifestyle where it's just training and constantly trying to uh, be better than you were yesterday. And then uh, when you get out, you know, that slows down a little bit. Um, and that's, that's hard to deal with at times. Yeah. The, the, who is the guy in Dallas? Something Ballin. Is it, uh, 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 what is his name? John Ballin. Do you know John Ballin? Uh, John Ballin, John Ballin, Mr. Ballin. He's got a YouTube channel with a few million subscribers. He's killing it on the internet right now, crushing it. And I think he's a former Navy SEAL or one of those things. I have seen a couple of his videos. Yeah, he has, he has something in Dallas where he has former Navy SEALs. Uh, anybody that made it at the highest level from every one of the branches, he brings them together. And it's a community for job placement to see them doing what they do next. Uh, you know, because sometimes to make that transition, I don't know what it's called. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I spoke to the crowd, the audience one time. I went to one of those uh, before I got out. Do you, know, um, do you remember the name? Meat or something. Say that again. Elite Meat. Yeah, that's what it is. Elite Meat. Yes, Elite Meat. Yes, Elite Meat. We had an interesting time with those guys talking to them because everybody looks like a stud or a studette. You're looking at these guys. I'm like, okay, oh my gosh, you look like you'd be a killer you know, an insane C-suite executive. You look like a VP, you look like this, and boom, dressed sharp, you know, to the T, chiseled, you know, with the eyes, like your eyes, with fire in those eyes. And, you know, how hard is it to transition for you from that life to civilian life? I was only in for three years, and it was pretty hard to transition from that life to civilian. How hard is it for someone like you to go at your level to go from that life to the civilian world? Um, you know, it, it's tough. Uh, I, I'm not going to lie, you know, I just spent this whole last year. Uh, I'm still going through transition. They uh, they say for uh, every five years that you're in, it's going to take two years to transition. Uh -oh. So, I mean, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, correct or not, but, you know, I can tell you, um, yeah, I've been going through it the past year and, uh, you know, I, uh, I had a especially unique transition because of everything I went through in my past yep. year. Just my face was, you know, all over the place. Um, but my wife, uh, you know, she pretty much mandated last year. She's like, all you're going to do this year is fix yourself and get treatments uh, for all of your injuries and just learn how to sort of slow down and relax. Uh, you know, of course, because once I got out, I was, you know, pretty much fighting the carpet, trying to do something else. Um, and I can tell you that's the best thing I've done. Uh, you know, I, I definitely, it, it, we went through some, you know, rough patches last year, just, but, uh, that's that's the name of the game you know you uh you give your life uh to to an organization and you give your literally uh blood sweat and tears and then pieces of your brain and you know everything else yeah you're gonna have some repercussions uh they you know they say if you touch more it touches you back which is completely true and uh you know that's that's what i think people need to realize is like we're you know these these veterans that are coming out now that have been in combat sustained combat for years they're not broken they just need some time to readjust, right? And I think, you know, certain certain uh, media, um, they they uh, try to say, you know, say that we're broken or somehow uh, um, say that we're messed up. And uh, it's, it's not true. Um, there's help out there. Um, you know, and I, you know, I talk to a therapist once a week um, just to, and it, you know, and whatever I can do to help myself because uh, what, you know, what I tell guys is, you know, you can't take care of 
anybody else until you can take care of yourself, until you fix yourself. You can't take care of your family until yourself is fixed. And so that's, you know, I, I'm glad that I spent the last year doing that. And, you know, and it's, it's going to be a constant uh, work in progress. Um, you know, it's never going to go away. Is there the itch to want to go? Is that what it is? Is it like, I miss, I got to get back. And like, well, this is too slow for me. This is that what it is? Or is it just recollections of events that took place? Uh, is it, is it rage? Is it frustration? Is it people don't understand me? What is it? Uh, for, well, I think it's different for each individual. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we all have the same, um, problems when we get out for me, it was, you know, my, uh, my levels were off as far as, uh, my dopamine. Um, I was in fight or flight 98% of the day, uh, without even knowing it. Um, I literally thought like, this is how I am. Uh, until you know i went and got a bunch of my levels checked and they're like yeah you're all this all your levels are messed up because of the past 20 years you've been constantly fighting and being in this like fight or flight stage and that's how your body thinks it's you know it works now uh thinks it's how it's supposed to be so i would i would find myself you know just i could be doing something normal like watching tv and then um all of a sudden i have the urge to go like out and do something you know i to go do something and not and that's not like i'm in a rage or anything like that it's more just internal um and then i think what comes with that when you realize you can't go do something you know uh, guys get depressed uh they're you know, what is my purpose now um why what am i here for um so there's a lot of those factors involved as well um and i think that that's a pretty common theme with a lot of guys it's just the purpose eddie is uh, your, your father do is he still around is your father still around and do you and him speak like was he one of the better people to speak to that understood like that that for you was like a source of release when you spoke to him uh yeah you know i i always have great conversations with my dad i think it's a little uh he understands some uh you know he you know he went to desert storm um he understands the military and how it works i i think he has he has any admits, you know, he doesn't know what it's like to uh, be in sustained combat for that long. Um, but he's definitely he's always a good shoulder to lean on and just talk to. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can only imagine, you know, when you can have uh, talk to somebody because, you know, even some of the uh, uh, deeper insecurities, you even don't want to talk to some therapist. Sometimes it's hard to even bring it out. You know, you, you can't even talk to your spouse. Sometimes sometimes it's easier to talk to a father or a mother that, you know, you know, it's going to stay there when you're talking to them. That's great to hear. So, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind taking a minute, the book, I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about a lot of different things here, but your book, the man in the arena from fighting ISIS to fighting for my freedom. Uh, what, what can the viewer right now expect from buying your book? What would they read about in the book? Uh, so you're pretty much going to read, I mean, I, go through uh, some of my childhood, uh, give some context to sort of who I am, uh, how my wife and I met. Um, but it's mainly focused around um, that, that deployment uh, in 2017. And then the two years that followed afterwards, and all, you know, me being locked up for nine months, and then going to the trial. Uh, but you, the reader will be able to see just everything that we went through, because, um, you know, what was reported, by the media, um, which was a lot of uh, misinformation and just straight out lies. Um, you know, that's what I think that's what a lot of Americans saw. Um, and then all of a sudden they saw that I was acquitted and they're like, oh, okay, well, there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, um, and uh, just from all like the, the deceit and corruption uh, by the government, by the prosecution, um, 
And so I go through all of that. I go through my time in the brig and just everything that was going on there. And then the really cool part is, you know, I have my wife, Andrea, um, tell what she, she was going through. Uh, she tells, you know, what it means to be a spouse, uh, how it was being a spouse in the SEAL teams, and then what she went through during that whole ordeal. And I mean, what her and my, my brother has chapters in it. Um, so what her and my brother did was beyond extraordinary. They, uh, as soon as they had locked me up, my wife, pretty much stood up and said, you're not doing this to him. Um, and she started a, uh, organ uh, a grassroots uh, Instagram campaign, putting the truth out there and uh, what was really going on. And she gained a pretty massive following, which then uh, got her on uh, Fox News. And then my brother at the same time was knocking down doors at Congress, trying to get uh, congressmen to pay attention to what was going on because pretty much my rights were being violated left and right. I was not being given due process. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, they both got 50 Republicans to sign a petition to let me out of prison so I could properly defend myself. And that's when the president stepped in and said, okay, let him out of prison so he can properly defend himself. Uh, I, you know, he wasn't saying I was guilty or not guilty. He was just like, due to his service to his country, you know, give this guy due process. Um, and, but, you know, that's where, um, because of the uh, state our country was in at the time and you had half the country who hated the president, um, then half the country all of a sudden hated me because they were like, oh, this guy's backing Eddie Gallagher and so he must be evil too. It was just, it was very eye-opening. Uh, the whole fake news thing, we, we drank through a fire hose from that, learned exactly how all that works. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we go through everything that we went through. And then the really cool uh, part of the book is, you know, as I was writing it, I going through everything that had happened, I, you know, I, my wife and I were talking, I was like, no one's going to believe this. Like, no one's going to believe that this could actually happen. And so I decided to put in QR codes in the book. So as you're reading along, um, you can go ahead and click on the QR code. And I love watch, that. Well, yeah, you can watch all the NCIS interviews, uh, listen to the whole trial audio, look at all the evidence they had against me. Um, look at all the text messages from the four guys that conspired against me, which it shows right there, they were conspiring. But I wanted to be completely just transparent and be like, here is everything and you can make up your own mind at the end. Anything you do differently looking back? Uh, looking back, I mean, you know, I, I probably, I mean, taking the picture, I wouldn't take the picture, I guess. Uh, but you know, that compared to what they were going after me for, that was such a minor charge. Um, and you know, my leadership style, uh, you know, now looking back, um, I, you know, I could have been a little more, a uh, little bit more sympathetic towards some of the guys, um, uh, maybe listen to them a little bit more. I was very um, target fixated as a leader. I, I was like, this, I, this job needs to get done. Um, and I wasn't thinking about anything else. Uh, so I think, you know, I could have improved on that. Um, you know, and as a leader, you, that's what you do is you, you get done and you uh, self-evaluate and you try to improve. No, you know, nobody gets it perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, I would not have changed uh, my tactics, the, the aggressive way we cleared Mosul. I, I would have been way more aggressive. Uh, it's just if I could have, you know. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's it. I mean, there's nothing much more I would have changed. Eddie, what do you think about what's going on with, uh, what uh, you know, General Milley said? I, I don't know. It was a month ago or something. He got up and he explained CRT and the direction military is going. I had... Uh, uh, the former Space Force commander on, and he was fired from his position because of the 
certain things he wrote in his book, you know, with, uh, when I was in 97, I, I didn't, you know, you and I are one year apart. I think you were 79, baby. I'm a 78, baby. I think you're, uh, are you May 29th? When are you, May, uh, uh, May 29th? May 29th. Yeah, my, uh, my daughter is May 27th. So May 29th. So Gemini, by the way, we're part of a very interesting camp. Tupac, Biggie, JFK, Marilyn yeah. Monroe, you know, uh, Elvis Presley, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. Like you got a very interesting camp you're part of, you know. Uh, say that again you know you're gemini's yeah i know i have to i mean gemini's are very interesting very creative how, how they are but um you know what do you think about what direction military is going right now what general millie's been talking about dude i on, honestly uh i saw what general millie said and uh, you know he doesn't believe what he's saying you know these these leaders and this is i think people have to understand this you know these officers once they hit a certain rank in the military, uh, and I don't quote me on this, but I believe it's like 04, 05, they have to get uh, Congress to sign off on their promotion, right? So what, what happens then? They, it becomes political. So these, these con con congressmen or women are like, okay, well, if you, you know, bow, bow the knee and like push our agenda, we'll sign off on you getting promoted. And so when they reach these high levels where Millie's at, you know, he's still doing the same thing. He's conforming to whatever the uh, current administration wants. And it, it's not about the, what's best for the military, it's about what's best for General Milley. Um, and that's that's the problem I'm seeing right now in the military is that you have these officers who are being negligent in their duties, which is to take care of the military, take care of the enlisted below them, but instead they're trying to, they're taking care of themselves first. Wow. So after a certain level, 0405, they need Congress's signature. So if you don't say the right thing, you're not going to get the promotion anyways. And that's, and that's why we call officers at that level politicians in uniform. Wow. So let me, let me ask you, who did you guys respect? Like amongst the Navy SEALs, who at that general, is there anybody that you would say that was a bad move? You know, that was a bad move for anybody that you guys looked at at that level that the folks like you respected a lot? Yeah, uh, you know, Admiral McGuire, he was, I mean, that guy was amazing. He was just recently on uh, Jocko's podcast, just a very level-headed, uh, take care of the boys type of mentality. No matter what rank he had, he, you know, he was always making sure the guys were taken care of, uh, their needs were taken care of, which is what a leader is supposed to do. Um, you know, and then you you have, uh, you know, I, I know, you know, I didn't work with Jocko, but uh, I had you know, friends that did and Jocko put us through training. I respected him as an officer when I was going through, you know, and I'll tell you what, the best officers that I've ever worked for are, are Mustangs. They're prior enlisted and then they decide to become an officer. Um, that way they know both parts uh, and they're the most level-headed ones. Um, you know, and there's, there's definitely a lot of good, good officers out there. Unfortunately in the military, it's, you know, if one officer above you tells you to conform and obey, well, in the military, we're told to follow orders, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's just going to trickle down to everybody else. That's a scary sight, buddy. It is. That's and a it, scary sight. It's scary, it's scary what's going on right now, um, especially with the uh, the scraping that's of the military. And I don't know if a lot of people know that this is going on, uh, but pretty much NCIS, uh, CID, which is the investig investigatory body for the Army, and then OSI is the investigatory body for the Air Force. They're going through uh, mainly special operators. 
through all of their social media. Um, they have access to it. Um, and if you have anything that's uh, what they consider extremist, which I consider pro-American. So if you uh, are a Trump supporter, if you uh, have pro-American slogans like don't tread on me, stuff like that, um, if you support the police, they are labeling you as an extremist and they're putting you into a group right now. So that's happening right now. And then what I see happening is they will Is just, this known? Is this known? Everybody knows that this is happening, scraping? No, I, I mean, it's being talked about more recently now. I think the news finally picked it up. I, I found out about this a couple months ago from a buddy who actually saw it happening. Uh, and so what they'll do, what I think they'll do is once they label you an extremist, it's against the uniform code of military justice to be part of an extremist group or a gang or anything. So they will just, you know, legally kick you out of the military. I mean, long term, this is just going to lower the standards and raise more pansies than raise uh, tough leaders that you need to protect your country. I mean, it's just not a proven formula. Sometimes you wonder what their motive is, what the outcome of is doing this. I think that's the scary part is you have to ask yourself, why are they doing this? Why are they taking out the 1% that actually wants to fight for this country? Because I'll tell you, being in the military, you learn really quick that whatever administration is in charge and whatever their agenda is, it trickles down to you. Like you get, you see little bits and pieces of it, but uh, we learn to sort of just deal with those and work our way around them so we can continue fighting the enemy, right? We don't care. I, I wasn't political at all uh, when I was in the military. I was just, I'll do what I'm told. I just want to go fight for this country, right? Well, now they're getting rid of those people with that mentality. They're going after those people. And so it's like, well, who's going to be left then? Who's fighting for them? Who is fighting for them? Who's fighting for you guys? I don't, at this point, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm about getting the word out. So people, people do understand what's going on and people will speak up. Is, it, is there a high-ranking person that's pretty vocal to go up against that uh, 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 pansification of, you know, whatever, to make everybody softer? Who's, who's pushing back? You see what happens to high-ranking officials when they do speak out and push back. You just, uh, you talk to the Space Force commander, I mean, they are pretty much done away with. Uh, and that's why, and that's the big fear tactic as well. They, they you speak out, they'll be like, well, we'll get rid of you. So everyone keeps their mouth shut so they can keep their job. You know who I think we need to bring back? I think we need to bring back, what was his name? What was uh, Al Pacino's name in Scent of a Woman? That lieutenant. <laughs> Remember <laughs> what I'm talking about? Who? Who? Yeah, he went up there and he called out the entire school. We almost need somebody like that with audacity to go out there and just keep kicking their asses to uh, let the world know what it, take, what it takes to be you. Uh, it, here's the other question for you. So we talked about those things. So uh, uh, Ward comes out this last week that they're about to make the vaccine mandatory in the military. What I remember when I was in the army is you stand in line at MEPS, not even MEPS. It's when you're going to boot camp, pre-boot camp that one week where you're getting everything situated, you stand in line and there's air guns with two, you know, 10 people lined up and you get 11 shots or 10 shots in a span of two minutes. That's what happened to me when I went. I'm sure you probably had to do the same thing as well. And we signed off. And the, yeah. Yeah, the sergeant will tell you, you can't say anything. You're government property. And I'm like, okay, go ahead. You know, So you get the shots. What are your thoughts about what they're doing with the vaccine to say you can't say anything? You just got to take it. You know, I, I'll tell you what, we've, I, we've had a lot of service members reach out to us, uh, especially to our uh, nonprofit, the Pipeter Foundation, with that, with that concern. Um, they don't want to take the vaccine. They 
you know, it's not been proven to work. Uh, the science isn't behind it, but they are being told that if they don't take it, then they will be either NJP'd or kicked out of the military. Um, <clears throat> I, I definitely don't, I don't think it's right. Um, you know, I took, when I was very young in the military, I did the anthrax uh, vaccine two and a half times. So I, that was about uh, 18 shots, um, you know, and I was told at the time, that if I resist, you know, resisted taking it, I get NJP. Um, they drive fear into you. Uh, but no, I think people need to fight back on this, especially, you know, seeing that the vaccine doesn't work, uh, not all the time. So, um, you know, I think it, it's just part of the agenda that's being pushed down. They, I think if they may mandate the, the military to take it, then they think that civilians will be like, okay, well then I guess I'll, we'll take it too. But the difference is the difference argument would be, they could say your government property, aren't you like, you know, the, the, the eight years or four years, whatever it is, you're officially government property. We're paying your bills. So you got to take it because we're taking care of you. Yeah. Oh, they'll say that, but that's, you can fight back on that. You're not, you're not a like complete government property. You still have rights. You're still an American. So you and I could have said uh, no to the anthrax shot that we took. Cause I mean, I took it as well. It was the same time when we took it and everybody at unit that Fort Campbell was like, Oh my gosh, guys, you know, we're hearing hearing there may be some long-term side effects and then you know guys would joke around about some things are going to fall off but you know <laughs> I just I just remember those types of conversations we'd have but uh can you really push back against the shots you got to take yeah uh, I know plenty of people that are still serving uh that never took the anthrax that refused it um and you know they were threatened but then at the end of the day they they still kept their jobs and they're fine well that's good to know that's good to know listen as long as there's the option to do so you know they're for, for most of us, private's like, hey, private, you, you, you know, you got to go get it done. You got no rank. You can't say anything. You just kind of have to, you know, shut your mouth and kind of move on. If you ever did it with a private, you'd probably get a lot of pushback. But I wonder what it is to be in a military today. I don't know what it is to be in a military. I don't know what boot camp is today. I don't know what AIT would be like today. I have no idea what it would be like to be in a military today. Like even the party and like, how careful do you have to be nowadays? You know, it's like, hey, do you not even party at all in the unit? Do you make sure you're doing it offsite? But what if you go offsite? It's easy to target military because they'll say he did this to me. Is it? Is it probably? I, I don't know. Is it a very walking on eggshells type of, you know, conditions to be in the military today? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I I saw that the last like four or five years I was in the, the complete shift. Uh, as well, I can only speak to the SEAL teams, uh, but yeah, there was a shift um, and. There was a lot of leadership walking on eggshells, uh, especially after my case, because um, I think what they saw is all it takes is one or two people to throw an accusation out there and you are done. You're guilty um, and your whole life is just flipped around. Um, but and I think, you know, what what needs to be brought back is loyalty to one another. You know what? Well, right now, what the military is putting out is you need to be loyal to the institution. You need to be loyal to, you know, Naval Special Warfare, if you're in the SEAL team, the institution, but in reality, you need to be loyal to the guy to the right and left of you, you know, and realize that people do make mistakes, but they should not be crushed for making mistakes. You should be out there looking out for them. And that doesn't mean if they make a mistake, you should turn them in or tell on them, that's your brother in arms, you, you have his back. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the way I was raised in the SEAL teams. Um, and I just saw that shift happen about four or five years ago. We're living in the snitching model, though, snitching era. This is, uh, 
you know, California, they had the whole thing where they're given $200 if you can snitch on people that are outside uh, during the shutdown. They were given bonuses to people yeah. who can snitch on somebody being outside. Right now, there's incentive, uh, you know, you get incentivized to snitch on people. It's a, it's a very, uh, I lived in Iran when that was normal. I lived there 10 years when that was normal to snitch on your neighbor, snitch on everybody. But uh, when that happens and trust goes down, morale goes down, division goes up, uh, history tells us what comes next isn't pretty. No, so. uh, that's, a, you know, that's a scary thought, you know, especially after being spending time in a lot of those places, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, just, you know, seeing how it's, it's like that over there. You know, that's a lot of the times how we find targets is people will come up and snitch on their neighbor like, oh, this guy's working for the Taliban, when in reality, that guy just stole one of his goats five years ago, and now he just wants to get back at him. Um, but that's that's sort of how it, it'll turn into. Um, people will be snitching on each other for no, any any reason just to get back at them for a personal agenda. Um, you know, and I, I think that at some at some point, I don't know when it happened, but it's like weakness became a virtue. Uh, it was like, oh, if you show that you're weak, it's it's strength, uh, and that is not uh, how we are supposed to be in the military. You know, we are supposed to, or America in general, is supposed to emote strength at all times. Uh, and I think that's a big problem as well. Well, I mean, if there's ever been a time when we need leaders to bully the bullies, today's the time. Uh, we need strong men and women to stand up uh, and be willing to uh, take the heat that comes with it. I don't think it's going to be an easy next two decades. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot more of this that's going to be going on. But one thing history tells us is when you try to overly control people, uh, people who value freedom a lot, they tend to stand up and not in the nicest way. They stand up in ways that, you know, uh, you just got to brace for impact when that happens. You can't go like this bullying people for too long. It just Again, history tells us you cannot bully people for too long without them standing up for themselves. The bow is going to break sooner or later. Yeah, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think this model works. Anyways, uh, uh, Chief Eddie Gallagher, thank you for being on. Appreciate you for your service. Folks, if you're watching this, Eddie, we're going to put the link to your book below as well, The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom. I just checked it out. It's only been out for about five weeks. It's got nearly 700 reviews on Amazon. If you haven't read it yet, click on the link below to go order his book. With that being said, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Tainment. Man, thank you. Appreciate you. Very interesting stories about what he had to go through, right? I mean, you got to think about how he views as a Navy SEAL, you know, what things he experienced, the life. How do you go from that to living a normal life? If you enjoyed this interview, put a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. I've got two other interviews that I think you'll like as well. One of them is with Oliver North. If you've never seen that, it's a similar story and he took a complete different angle if you've never seen that click over here and the other one is with a former sniper what i believe 33 different kills that he had uh, uh nicholas irving fascinating story if you've never seen that one click over here thanks for watching everybody take care bye, -bye.